I want to read Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father, in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You may be seated. In the English language, we have what is called euphemisms. A euphemism is simply finding a softer, nicer way of saying something that is harsh or unpleasant. For example, last night, after soundly beating my son four times in ping pong, I could have said, you're no good at this. Um, But instead, I probably should have used a euphemism like, your ping pong skills leave a lot to be desired. So we've developed these things in our speech to soften our speech. Some of you are pretty good at this. A few weeks ago, uh, Daniel Coffin told me that when I stand here in the light, uh, my head shines. That's just a softer way of saying that I'm bald. And um, I like to say that my comb over is just a little shorter than his. A few weeks ago, Matt, Matt Esch Um, listed some of the young men, young married men at church that uh, inspire him. And as he listed the names, I was waiting for mine. It never came. So I asked him, you know, what the problem is, if he doesn't think I'm young married or what. He said, no, you're definitely young married. You're just not an inspiration. (laughs) He should have used a euphemism. Well, I'm, I'm sort of having fun at the beginning of the sermon here because there's quite a large portion of it that isn't much fun, so bear with me. Um, the, the title of the sermon today is A Lot to be Desired. It's the story of Lot, and his life leaves a lot to be desired. It's a nicer way of saying that it's a disaster. So uh, I want to make one more point just real clear. Later when you're eating lunch and somebody asks you what the sermon was about, the correct thing to say is the title of the sermon was A Lot to be Desired. 
<clears throat> Please don't say, the sermon left a lot to be desired. There's a big difference. So the only reason that I'm even entertaining using a euphemism to describe Lot's life is because in the Bible, in 2 Peter 2, it calls, describes Lot as a just man and a righteous man. It's a description of Lot that, by my observation of the written historical event, is not justifiable. However, I'm not here to argue with the Bible. The story of Lot begins with Terah, Lot's grandfather, leaving Ur, which is where Haran, Lot's father, died. Or maybe I should use a euphemism, he passed away. But Terah died in Haran, and Abraham, who was Lot's uncle, cared for his nephew Lot. And it seems a logical fit for a fatherless child to be cared for by a childless father. And we don't know, and the Bible doesn't say, but maybe, perhaps, Abraham thought that Lot could be his promised child. Or maybe Lot moved with Abraham because he wanted the blessings of the promised child. Or maybe Abraham was just caring for his fatherless nephew. But Abraham follows the call of the Lord to Canaan, and he brings Lot with him. At some point, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham drug his family into Egypt. And after they had lived in Egypt for a time, the Bible says that in Genesis 13:3 that Abraham returned and came again to Bethel, where he had previously lived and where he had previously worshipped. And Abraham called on the name of the Lord, out of Egypt and back to the Lord. Abraham and Lot grew in the, the wealth, their wealth and the size of their herds and cattle, and at some point there was not um, the land was not big enough, they said, to support both of them. And so they chose to split ways. There was some tension growing between Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. Maybe Lot remembered the hard times of the famine. Maybe he feared a reoccurrence of a famine. For whatever reason, he chose the plain of Jordan, which was well-watered, um, even as the garden of the Lord, the Bible says. So after Lot parts ways with Abraham, the Lord promised all the land to Abraham and his descendants. <clears throat> well, there seems to be some political disturbance in the area. Uh, there were four kings against five, and for 12 years the one group served the other. And then in the 13th year, the king of Sodom and his group of kings rebelled against Chenerleoma and his group of kings. So maybe this political unrest is what caused fear in Lot. Maybe he chose to move towards Sodom because they were the larger group in the alliance. They had five kings as opposed to four. Maybe he felt safer in that alliance. Maybe it was fear of famine that caused him to choose the best ground, and maybe it was fear of national privilege or stability that he chose to move toward Sodom and into Sodom. It seems that the further Lot gets in life, the more fearful he becomes. And the more determined he is to preserve himself. Well, Cheddar Leoma and his armies successfully took captive Sodom and they took Lot and they headed north. And Abraham hears that Lot is captured and he 
takes 318 trained men and he overtakes the armies and saves Lot and the people and returns them safely to their homes. And the king of Sodom, Sodom offers to allow Abraham to keep all the spoil and the stuff. But Abraham chooses to return everything. Um, he did not want any confusion to arise as to where his uh, prosperity, where his wealth, where his stability, where his sustenance comes from. Abraham continues to be visited by the Lord from time to time, and the Lord affirms and reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. And as a result of spending time with God, I think Abraham's faith is, is rapidly growing. And Abraham, we know, made some awful mistakes, um, some out of fear for his own life and some out of lack of trust and impatience with God's plan. But now it seems, as we come to Genesis chapter 18, that faith in God was erasing his fears. In Genesis 18, we read one day that Abraham sat in the door of the tent in the heat of the day, and the Lord again appeared to him with two other men, the Bible tells us. And Abraham prepares a meal, and they eat. And the Lord then promised that this time next year, Sarah would have a son, and Sarah knew that she was too old, and so she laughed within herself, and the Lord called her out for laughing at his promise. And then the three men rose, and they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham sort of went with them a bit to get them started on their journey And as they went, the Lord decided to fill Abraham in as to why they were visiting Sodom. And the Lord said that there was a cry coming out of Sodom because of the wickedness being so great. And he has come to investigate and to see whether the wickedness matches the cry coming from the city. So the men left, and Abraham is left standing before the Lord And Abraham gets to work interceding for the righteous of Sodom. Abraham's faith is producing a fight in him. He protected Lot and saved him in the past. And he's again fighting for his nephew's salvation. Faith produces in us a fight for others' security, for their salvation, for their well-being. Fear produces failure to be of help to really anyone. Abraham reminds the Lord that he is just and says, what if there are 50 righteous in the city? Will you destroy it? And the Lord says, if there are 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham said, look, Lord, I know that I'm simply dust and ashes and you are the Lord, but what if there's five less than 50? Will you destroy it for five? And the Lord said, if I find 45 righteous, I'll spare the city. So Abraham quickly says, what about 40? And the Lord agreed that he would spare the city if he finds 40 righteous people. Abraham said, oh Lord, don't be angry, which in my opinion is not a bad thing to say at this point. If the Lord was headed for Sodom to destroy it, what is Abraham doing getting in his way? The anger of the Lord seems to be bent towards Sodom, and it's not really difficult to include Abraham in that destruction if he chooses. But Abraham in faith is advocating for the righteous, and he is fighting for the cause of the righteous. 
Abraham says, will you destroy the city if you find 30 righteous? The Lord says, if I find 30 righteous, I will not destroy the city. Then Abraham says, I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord. It's sort of like saying, I, I came this far, so I might as well keep going. What if there's 20 righteous? Will you destroy the city for 20 righteous people? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Well, Abraham is winding down, but he has one last request. And he says, will you please spare the city if you find 10 righteous people living in it? And the Lord agreed to spare the city if he can find 10 righteous souls in the city of Sodom. And that's where the conversation ended. The welfare of Sodom rests on the Lord's ability to find 10 righteous people. And may I remind you that at some point, Lot was very wealthy with lots of herdsmen and cattle and servants. He should have, his influence should have reached well beyond the limit of 10 people. Genesis chapter 19, in my opinion, is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. In verse 1, two angels show up at the city gate where Lot was sitting. And he invites them into his home. The two angels, however, are determined to spend the night on the street. But Lot is equally, or actually more determined, to have them spend the night in his home. And he convinces them to do just that. It seems he may have learned some of his negotiating skills from his uncle Abraham. So Lot prepares a feast, and it mentions only one thing in particular... And that is that he baked and served unleavened bread. And this is, I believe, the first time that unleavened bread is mentioned in the Bible. And so it carries some significance. But I think probably more than anything, it just indicates that there was a hurry. There was a rush. There was a haste in preparing this bread. I think um, Lot understood that um, there wasn't much time left. Seems like he wanted these men to quickly eat, quickly go to bed for their own safety and well-being. Years later, of course, we understand that um, as the children of Israel left Egypt, um, they baked the bread without leaven and they uh, observed this at each Passover as a, a symbol of fleeing from Egypt, fleeing from sin. Uh, but what is about to happen here in Genesis 19 uh, and what would have happened and what could have happened without the intervention of these two angels is total depravity and, and full of sin. Chapter 19 in Genesis in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, can pass the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, unto him Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. 
And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and will he indeed be a judge? Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Even the biblical text at this point seems to be using euphemisms to describe, to describe the intentions of the men of Sodom. They all came out from every quarter. All the city of Sodom came to Lot's house and demanded that he release his two guests so that they could assault them sexually. And Lot says, don't act so wickedly, but rather take my two virgin daughters and sexually assault them however you wish. Just don't lay a hand on these two men because they came to me and are my guests and that would make me look bad. The men of Sodom were so angry with Lot that they threatened to include him in their devious assault on his two guests. Again, Lot needs a miracle to be saved. And only by a miracle did Lot and his two daughters and two guests avoid a horrific night of brutal assault at the hand of the Sodomites. The angel struck the men of Sodom with blindness, and they gave up their wicked, evil intentions and finally went home after being weary of searching for the door. Well, the guests of Lot told him to get his family and his belongings out, because the Lord has sent us to destroy this city. And when Lot visits his sons-in-law and, and explains to them their need to be removed from the city, and they think that he is telling them a joke. They did not believe him, and he could not convince them. And when you're in sin... And when you're lukewarm, there's really no reason for anyone to take you seriously. You're of little help to anyone. In the morning, the angels told Lot to take his wife and daughters and get moving. Time is running out. Destruction is coming. And in verse 16, he lingered. In the face of certain destruction, he lingered. And again, miraculously, Lot was delivered. It says, these visitors laid hold on the hands of Lot and his wife and daughters and set them outside the city. Lot's life was so entrenched in Sodom that without being physically removed by the angels, he would have lingered to the point of certain destruction. So they carried him out and told him to flee out of the plain up into the mountains so that he is not consumed by the destruction. It seems like Lot feared being saved more than he feared his destruction if he stayed in Sodom. And Lot doesn't want to go up into the mountains. He says, not so, my Lord, that will never work. I mean, you have been very gracious. You've extended untold mercy by saving me and my daughters from certain sexual assault and probably death, but I cannot go into the mountains lest some evil overtakes me. Let me head over to Zoar, it's just a little city, and I'll be safe. And for some reason, they agreed to allow that. And the sun was risen when Lot entered the city, and the sky rained down brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. 
Abraham rose in the morning and went to a place where he stood before the Lord. And in this whole story, I think that phrase is the most refreshing thing that anyone can ever hear. Abraham rose in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord. Abraham is spending each day with the Lord. He is meeting with the Lord. This particular morning, he saw the smoke of the city rising from Sodom and its surrounding towns and the whole plain, billowing smoke as from a furious furnace. The Lord had dealt with the sinful Sodomites, but he remembered Abraham, and he rescued his nephew Lot from the cities of which he dwelt. Verse 29. Lot then went up to Zoar and dwelt went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains with his two daughters, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. Notice the fear, but notice the ridiculous decision-making of Lot. The very place he was afraid to go became the place he fled to when he feared to live in the place he thought would be safer than the place he originally feared to go. The fear is rising, and panic is seems to be a constant thing in Lot's life. But he's living in a mountain in a cave with his two daughters. And now his daughters panic. They say that there is no man left to be married to, which is not true. Sure, the wicked men were destroyed and many, many men were consumed in the brimstone and fire, but not every man on the face of the earth was gone. So Lot's daughters come up with a plan that matches the debauchery of Lot's plan to offer them over to the Sodomites for sexual assault and abuse. In today's language, the two daughters raped their own father on two consecutive nights by getting him blackout drunk, and both became impregnated by their father, and each has a son. I'm not even sure what to say about the daughters of Lot at this point, but it seems they have learned at least one thing from their father, and that is to act out of fear. They feel the need to preserve themselves, and there is no faith present, no trusting in God for their future. The older sister has a son, and she named him Moab, and he became the father of the Moabites. The younger sister also bore a son and named him Benami, and he became the father of the Ammonites. Well, the story of Lot really does leave a lot to be desired. It could possibly be described as a plethora of selfish decisions which resulted in even more bad decisions and deplorable behavior. We're basically left with the euphemism. The story of Lot leaves a lot to be desired. Well, in life, I think experience is perhaps the greatest teacher. However... It's less painful to learn from others' experience than your own, especially if it's a bad experience. So let's explore a little bit Lot's painful mistakes. And I'm going to make some observations of Lot's life. And my observations are just that. They're clearly not in the biblical canon of Scripture. There's no book of the Bible called Glenn, and I'm sure you're forever grateful for that. So these are simply observations, could be right or wrong. 
I don't know Lot personally. I didn't. Uh, so I'm assuming things from a distance. You can take it or leave it. But these are my observations. I believe Lot is lukewarm. And the text that, we re- that was read earlier from the book of Revelation, I believe, I, I believe describes Lot's life very well. He's lukewarm. And uh, the church at Laodicea and the warnings that were given to them gives us a very honest look at how God feels about a church and a people who are lukewarm. Laodicea was also, interestingly, named by Paul in Colossians 2. And he warns them of, of several things. So I'm going to couple the warnings in Revelation 3 with the concerns of Paul in Colossians 2 and draw a few conclusions about being lukewarm. Again, a description that that fits a lot well. I believe, number one, that a lukewarm person is concerned about material self-preservation. He is wrong in his interpretation. He sees everything from the lens of selfishness, his pride, his preservation. Revelation 3.17 says you are... You say you are rich and have everything you need, but you don't realize that you are miserably poor and blind and naked. And Lot was misguided in his interpretation of himself. He made decisions based on nearsighted vision. He was concerned about his material prosperity, his livelihood, his self-preservation but he failed to see the danger and destruction that completely surrounded him. Lot selfishly chose the fruitful plain in order to achieve or maintain prosperity, to preserve himself, and he lost everything several times. Someone who is lukewarm thinks that he is rich and in need of nothing, but in reality their lives are in shambles. They are broken in pitiful condition, They are in ruins. Abraham, on the other hand, unselfishly gave up the land, the best land. And he lived in faith that God would provide for his welfare. And he received an inheritance and a blessing from God. Lot lived in fear, and Abraham lived by faith. Number two, a lukewarm person is concerned about political self-preservation. And I don't mean... um, politics as you might think of them with presidential elections and things like that, but uh, interacting with people, reputation, relationships. A lukewarm person is concerned about political self-preservation. He is wrong in his identification. Lot identified with the Sodomites. When it speaks of him sitting in the gates, it's not just a relaxing afternoon Uh, leisurely time. It probably means that he was likely similar to a mayor. He had status. He had political status there in Sodom. The gate of the city is where uh, important things took place. Um, Property was exchanged and recorded. Uh, Covenants were made and ratified. And maybe Lot's intention was to change the city of Sodom by acquiring a position and I believe as he analyzed the set of kings and which, should be, which he should align with, 
it was, his decision was motivated by self-preservation. A lukewarm person places a high value on political positioning, which means that he, val- he values and is consumed with overpowering others. He wants influence, but he's not willing to be influenced by God. Notice that while Lot was sitting at the gate, Abraham was sitting by God. In Genesis 1927, as I mentioned earlier, Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. Lot sitting in the gate, and Abraham, day by day, is standing before the Lord. What a stark contrast. Abraham is meeting with God. He is concerned about his relationship with the Lord. In faith, he is trusting God to provide for him and lead him. And Lot is concerned about providing for himself, both materially and politically. Lot wants to provide a safe place for himself to live in a fortified city. Abraham understands that the safest place to be is in the presence of God. Abraham wants to be sure that he is hearing from God. And Lot wants to be sure that others are hearing what he has to say. Number three, a lukewarm person is concerned about spiritual self-preservation. He is wrong in his isolation. When a lukewarm person hears the knock on the door, he does not answer. He would rather isolate himself forever than allow Christ to come in. He is too scared to repent and too scared of the discipline and rebuke and love of the Lord. He is also too scared to open the door because perhaps Christ may lead him out of isolation and into a path that he perceives to be uncomfortable or full of uncertainty. And so a lukewarm person remains isolated. A lukewarm person is also wrong in his insulation. Jumping over to Colossians chapter 2, where Paul struggles with the lukewarm Laodiceans, he warns them against being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men. We can read that in Colossians 2 verse 8. A lukewarm person, in an attempt to preserve themselves spiritually, not only isolate themselves and do not open the door, but they insulate themselves with empty and deceitful traditions. They can appear righteous on the surface, but inside they are full of death. Lot invited the visitors to stay in his home, likely because he wanted to protect the reputation of his city. He offered to allow the sodomites to molest and abuse his daughters in order to preserve his reputation. It seems to me that Lot was a lukewarm person who lived in fear. He feared material failure, he feared political failure, and he feared losing his reputation. And so he bolstered his own version of spirituality. He would never allow the men of the city to sexually assault his visitors. Traditionally, he was responsible for their well-being since they were under his roof. But he was willing and even suggested trading the sexual assault and abuse of his daughters to protect his reputation with his guests. He would allow the probable death of his daughters in the most grotesque way 
in order to save his reputation. He is trading wickedness for wickedness, and he thinks that he's spiritual. This is what a lukewarm person does. He convinces himself that he is a moral person, but he is simply trading sin for sin, never repenting, never humbling himself, and never purchasing the gold that is refined in the fire or accepting the white robes of righteousness from God, never applying the salve to the eyes, never allowing the discipline and rebuke of the Lord, not answering the knock at the door, but rather choosing to live in isolation to the cost of his very life. In reality, his intention is to preserve his life. The very thing that he wants to preserve is lost. He cannot see the death and destruction that are staring him in the face. He lingers and is slow to escape the certain destruction that is definitely coming. He is blind and he cannot see afar off. Lot was trapped in the sin of preserving self. Materially, politically, and spiritually. It's difficult to find anything positive in Lot's life. Instead, there is fear, stress, failure, brokenness, isolation, bondage, depravity, and twisted sinful logic. This is the story of Lot. But it's more than that. It's about Lot and Abraham. But it's larger than that. Lot's oldest daughter's name, I'm sorry, Lot's oldest daughter's son was named Moab, and he became the father of the Moabites. Years later, we read of a woman of Moab whose name was Ruth. When her husband died and her mother-in-law returned home to Bethlehem, Ruth clung to her and claimed her God, Jehovah, as her own. And she allowed Boaz to be her redeemer. And together, Ruth the Moabitess, a descendant of Lot, and Boaz, whose ancestors included Judah and Tamar, which is a whole different story of redemption, together became the great-grandparents of King David, from whose lineage came Jesus Christ, your Redeemer and my Redeemer. The story of Lot is the story of you. And just as Abraham rescued Lot when he was taken captive, your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will also rescue you when sin has taken you captive. And just as the angels grabbed Lot and set him outside the path of destruction, so the Lord Jesus will lift you out of sin that is destroying you. Your Redeemer knows very well that there is sure judgment coming for sin. And so he came to earth to die in order to redeem you from the curse of sin. And your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, knows that you are trying to preserve your life. He knows that you wish to maintain your reputation. And he, need, he knows that you need a relationship with God Almighty. And he knows the only way to the Father is through him, through Jesus. And so he stands at the door and knocks. And if you answer the door, he will come in and visit with you, and he will provide you with gold tried in the fire and with white robes of his righteousness. And he will heal your blind eyes so that you can see. The point of 2 Peter 2, 4-10 is that God, if God, is able 
and willing to rescue Lot from the destruction that Sodom deserved, he is certainly able and willing to rescue you and to rescue me from the certain destruction that we find ourselves in. It is what he's good at. It's his thing, rescuing people and perish, rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying is what Jesus is good at. And it's, it's what we as his followers should be good at as well. Our Redeemer takes one of the most dreadful stories ever told and turns it into pure gold. The story of Lot gives us assurance that our Redeemer is willing to rescue me. But you must repent and open the door and let him in, and he will heal your isolation, and he will remove your insulation, and he will heal you, and you will march with Jesus triumphant over sin. Jesus said in Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will lose his life, I'm sorry, for whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus stands at the door knocking, but the devil also knocks. And for some of you, the devil is leaning on the doorbell, and his obnoxious call is the door that you have opened. And now you are at enmity, the Bible says, with God himself. And you desperately need a redeemer who can kick the devil out of your heart. He can cleanse your heart. He can wash it. And Jesus, your redeemer, can give you life where there was nothing but darkness and death. Maybe you have insulated yourself by applying religion or church tradition to your life. But until you apply the blood of the Lamb, you're smack in the middle of the path of destruction. If you never answer the knock of Jesus who is standing at the door, you will suffer the very same fate as the men of Sodom. Revelation 3.21 To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, 